Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Till death do us part. You've heard it. I've heard it. We've all heard it at some point. If you've ever tied the knot, you might have even said it yourself. But there's another phrase that you sometimes hear among couples who have been married a long time. Before my father passed away a few years ago, I even used to hear my mother say it, sometimes under her breath when she thought no one was listening. You know the one, not till death do us part, but murder before divorce. Most days I took it as a sign of marital affection, but sometimes I wasn't so sure. Natural causes was the entry on my father's death certificate, I'm relieved to say. But other husbands haven't always been so lucky. Continuing our series on prominent women in true crime history, today we're moving from the wild river counties of Arkansas up to the verdant farmland of rural Missouri, where we meet a lady whose family tree has a whole lot of broken branches, branches broken by her own deadly hand. Here to tell us about this black widow killer is Victoria Love Cosner, the co-author, along with Lorelai Shannon, of Missouri's Murderous Matrons, Emma Hepperman and Bertha Gifford, published by the History Press. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. It is such a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you guys for inviting me. This is um, this is fun. We love talking about our books. Before we get deep into the saga of Missouri's murderous matron, tell us a little bit about yourself. You have been fascinated with lost stories for years, haven't you? I, my um, background, I'm a public historian by trade. Um, I've been in public history for 30 years. My mom wrote children's books, so I had that background. And um, when I was in high school, my mom took me with uh, one of my health teachers and one of my mom's friends and an Arizona historian, and we went to a cemetery and Marshall Trimble, the, the historian, started telling me stories. And we walked from gravestone to gravestone. And honestly, I just fell in love. I have worked in um, with cemetery history, um, restoration. Um, my master's degree is in the cultural landscapes of cemeteries, why people do what they do, why they bury them, and that type of thing. And, um, you know, then me and my little friend group, which includes Lorelai Shannon, from high school, we've been friends since high school. Um, you know, we were a bit of on the dork side. So you had, <laughs> you know, you have the little sci-fi people, the horror people. Um, Lorelai is a horror writer by trade. And um, that's just where we, we came about. You know, I, I like to believe that when it comes to uh, the nerds, the dorks, the outcasts, the readers of our world, we find our own, don't we? Yes, we do. And we keep them once we find them. So you spent decades and decades honing and developing your interest in these matters. And now you work for the state of Missouri in its parks department. It sounds like there is ample opportunity for research, for new kinds of research on the things you're interested in, isn't there? Yeah, they, um, Missouri State Parks and Sites has 92 sites. And it's kind of funny because the best I can figure after talking to staff, I've been with um, State Parks about 16 years. And um, there always seems to be a ghost story at almost every park, certainly every historic site. And um, they're not too excited um, if we talk about, you know, ghost stories, but paranormal tourism is huge right now. Um, and there's a history behind why ghost stories exist in a particular place. You know, there's always a backstory. Right. There's always some blood found on the trail somewhere, some sharp rock used as the implement. And then, of course, the tale gets slightly weirder every time it's told, right? We also, not in state parks, but in Missouri, we do have a cryptid. So, mm. Oh, which one? You'll be happy to know that. Momo, he's a Missouri monster. He's a Sasquatchish gentleman. I have to ask, have you ever seen Momo yourself? I have not seen Momo. There have been no sightings recently. Um, mm. He's out of Louisiana, Missouri, which is north of St. Charles, which is where I am. I'm outside the St. Louis metro area. 
um, but not too far. And um, I can tell you that people have a sense of humor about Momo in Louisiana because there are several Momo statues hiding behind trees as you drive down the highway. <laughs> so, Well, maybe he's just planning his comeback tour. He's taken a bit of a break, and we'll see him again in years to come. Tell us, apart from Murderous Matrons, you have written several other titles for Arcadia and History Press. For listeners who may not know your previous work, can you tell us just a bit about those other volumes? Our first book was um, Mad Madame LaLaurie, um, New Orleans' most famous murderess unveiled. Um, it was a once-in-a-lifetime. You know, we had gone, I had gone on a ghost tour, and um, they were talking about Delphine LaLaurie and her heinous acts and the ghosts behind her. And um, I was fascinated how much historical content they had. And when I asked them... Um, the guide said it's all still in the archives. And I said, well, why isn't there a book written about it? And, and whenever you ask that of someone, they always say, well, I'm writing a dot, 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 you know. And so I started sniffing around and, oh, my gosh, it was all still there. And nobody had ever looked at it. She'd only been included in ghost stories. And it was phenomenal. You are our first official Missouri book on the Crime Capsule podcast. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Missouri has a reputation in the American mind as being the place where your wagon team departs from on the Oregon Trail. You know, that beloved computer game that graced nearly every classroom of the 1990s. As someone who logged probably far too many hours on the old OT in the back of those classrooms, I have to ask, how true to life is that depiction and i'm asking you vicky please don't break my heart please i'm begging you <laughs> oh first of all i i did not grow up here i grew up in arizona so i am not an insider i'm i'm not a missourian despite the fact being here for 20 years um it, it the reputation of the down homeness and the um bucolic farms you know once you're 45 minutes out of st louis you're in farmland um there's not a lot of i mean the big cities are you know fairly well scrunched together and that was one of the things that fascinated me when i got here um st louis is different than the rest of the state because it started with french louisianans coming up um the mississippi whereas the bulk of the rest of Missouri was taken from westward expansion. And so, yeah, it, it really is, you know, they're, they're sturdy, they're tough. Um, they're farmers, they're, um, opinionated. And, um, a lot of what we talk about with Emma and, and Bertha, they are kind of that matriarchal personality that you expect you know, these farm matrons to have. Well, that's the thing. This is a book about a uh, sturdy, tough, down-home kind of lady who also happens to be a cold, calculating serial killer. Um, how did you first discover the stories of Emma Hepperman, Hepperman? Excuse me. How did you first discover the stories of Emma Hepperman and Bertha Gifford? I was at work. At, um, I was at a historic site in St. Charles, Missouri, and someone came in. I was working at the front desk and said, do you have anything on that woman who killed all her husbands here in St. Charles? And I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she repeated the question, and I'm like, who is that? And she's like, I can't remember her name. Mm. So, you know, I started delving into the, the you know, the netherworlds of female serial killers, Missouri. And every time Bertha Gifford came up, every single time, and as a matter of fact, if you, um, if you Google her, she comes up as in the top 10 serial killers, women throughout the country. And so, but nobody knew anything about Emma. And so when we first started looking at it and saw that they were killing concurrently, um, you know, with just a couple, like a decade or so in between them, I thought, this is good. And then when I found out they both had been tried in Union, Missouri, which is um, south of St. Louis County, 
I thought this can't be better to try to interweave. And I was hoping they knew each other, but they didn't. Um, at least not that we could find, but, um, that's how I got on to Emma. And then like, it was kind of like Madame LaLaurie, everywhere you looked, you found things, but nobody had ever talked about her and nobody had ever put that together. Um, we generally don't like doing newer stories. And when I say newer, I mean, 20th century. Um, and Emma turned out to be one of the reasons why that is. Like, I couldn't get her death certificate until after the book was published um, because they she it, she was too recent. The perils of a historian, I suppose. Uh, she was a piece of work, a black widow killer, and a good one, a skilled one at that. It's not often that we get one of those uh, to, to look at. She was born in... 1891 in a small village. And you write that we don't actually know all that much about her early life. Why is that? She was a woman. She was a woman in a small town in Missouri. The census records weren't really put together that well at that point. Um, You're coming up on the Civil War. It just everything was counting against her and she didn't do anything that they knew of outstanding. Um, you know, but then again, when you start digging the amount of people who, sorry, the digging was in a, a was a pun, but it didn't mean to be. When you start <laughs> looking at the research. It was so subtle, Vicky, that I, it just completely <laughs> passed me by. Exactly. <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, people die around Emma. People die and they die not, um, in a good way. You know, it's not like mom passes away in her bed. They, it's, they're, it's bad. Oh, so bad. As I used to tell my children when they asked me what I was working, I'm like, it's a bad lady. It's a bad. <laughs> but so then when you start following Emma's trail, um, she was smart and, you know, was able to figure out an MO fairly early that the police didn't catch up until husband number six. It's extraordinary. So she enters Missouri history around age uh, 19 when she marries her first husband. And uh, if I recall correctly, her first husband actually, uh, it's terrible to have to say this, Vicki, and I I can't believe it, but out of all of them, he kind of made it the longest with her. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, it's not, that shouldn't be an achievement, but when you're married to, to Emma Hepperman, it kind of is. So, uh, tell us about husband number one. Charles was, his family went back a couple generations, which was surprising, um, because that town was, I don't want to say fairly new, but at this point, yes, they were all fairly new. Um, a trail of tears came through that town And um, Charles was just like most of her other husbands. He was blue collar. Um, He was hardworking. He, um, you start seeing weird things, though, with Emma when she marries him. One, we're not really sure when she was born. And that's not unusual for the time period because a lot of people were born at home. But sometimes there was up to a nine-year difference in her age that she would quote. She also said that she had 10 to 12 kids with him. Um... Now, yeah, I don't know that they existed. Um, you can find four of them. Four of them have have birth certificates at different times. Um, but 10 to 12 kids, mathematically speaking, she should have been having one one a year. While he is supporting her, her mother dies, kind of unusually. His brother dies. There was another schwack that died. Um... Nobody attributes this to her yet. Um, but when Charles, well, you know, we, you got to wonder, you, you got to wonder when people die around you all the time, you know what I mean? That it's that how many more should we attribute to her? Um, but one of the things I loved about when I was doing the research is like with Charles, we were able to get like his, draft card. So we know what he looked like, um, which is kind of a, a neat thing when you're doing your, um, doing your history. Um, but again, things like that, he was a blacksmith, then he worked for the telephone company. Why would he change? 
I, you know, but then you had the Civil War. So I, I know I'm just babbling, but this is how you you start sorting through history is like, why the anomalies? Why the anomalies? Let me just ask you to speculate, actually, for a second. That great, great tool of all interested researchers into the past. Um, do you think that we'll have plenty to say about motive once the body count has gotten a little higher, but do you think that at the beginning of Emma's murderous spree, if you mentioned that her mother had passed away, do you think that she might have suffered some sort of psychotic break that sort of changed who she was or what she thought her fortunes in this world would be? Do you think that there might have been a rupture in sort of the fabric of her mind at that point? My gut is yes. Um, I always wondered if perhaps that she was um, abused, um, probably by her very strict Bavarian mother. Um, I And the reason I think that is because of how she how she treated kids, how she treated family um, and how she got people out of her way. I would have voted her on the narcissism scale with that, with that psychopathic, you know, I, I don't know that I, when we're talking about mental illness, I'm kind of of the opinion that if you start killing multiple people, there is a mental illness whether it was a break that made her not guilty by reason of insanity. I don't know. I don't think so because she was methodical. Um, and that had to be because of hatred is the best I can figure. But, um, honestly, Lorelai is better at doing the psychology than I am. But what I see is that she's, she starts out with random killings. I don't think, like you said, her motive becomes very clear later on. But um, did she was she tired of Schwack and decided to get him out of the way? Um, why did her brother-in-law die mysteriously in St. Louis when she was there? You know, that type of thing. And that sounds more methodical to me. Um, but, you know, abuse goes a long way in triggering things. And we may never know, we probably will never know with respect to her. So Charles makes it 15 years. He gets the gold medal as far as um, spousal longevity goes to, to Emma. And then how does he meet his end? He meets his end through, well, um, we have a running, I don't want to say joke, but it is kind of a joke about um, that, you know, gastritis. And anytime anyone asks what either Emma or Bertha's were like gastritis and they're like gastritis. And I'm like, yes. And then they'll say, well, what causes gastritis? And you're like, well, according to the coroner, everything causes gastritis. <laughs> but um, he died of what they were calling. I'm trying to read his oh, dysentery with overheating as a um, and that's actually on his birth certificate over as a contributing factor which is basically um, she claimed he was out working and ate something bad and then had um, these, these symptoms and it, it, it's an arsenic poisoning, you know, and we know that now, but back then they would have said, Oh, gastritis, dysentery happens all the time, you know, type of thing. And I mean, um, look, it's where the, it's what killed off all of my, uh, pioneers on the Oregon Trail, just you know, year exactly. after year after year, you know, they would make it to Fort Hood or wherever, and then one by one, man, down they would go. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's just sad. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about Charles, though, is that there's no headstone for him, um, or there wasn't at the time, and. Um, we couldn't find it. We couldn't find his grave. We found Maud's grave. Um, why isn't there a headstone for him? And the, that reason didn't come up for us other till later. Um, my guess is it's because she left town and didn't mark his grave because she didn't care anymore. Um, she took two or three of her daughters with her when she left there. And that then she's out of Steelville and heading for bigger cities after Charles is dispatched. 
There's more fish in the lake. What can you say? So her second husband is a little bit more of a mystery compared to to Charles. Why why is her second husband a little harder to track down? There was no marriage license that we could find. Um, Frank Lee is an incredibly common name. Um, unfortunately for me, there were literally like dozens of them in St. Louis. Before the book came out, I found nothing about Frank Lee. I didn't know why he was included in the story, you know, because the stories are always written like once and then people keep referring back to where they found it, you know, so a local historian or a blog or, you know, and it was the same with LaLaurie. Everybody kept using the same story. She says that they divorced, but there is no divorce record. But again, if you're common law, you wouldn't have had that document. If you didn't get married, if you were whatever. But the thing that is bizarre about that is that she uses his last name on and off throughout um, the rest of her, her life. And I can't find him. And it was very angering for me. Most people put him as um, husband number three. I suspected he was husband number two because of her use of the last name, but she also could have made him up. We count him as a victim because we can't find him and, you know, and we're not going to go with the no body, no crime. But um, after the book came out, I had somebody come and show me a picture of a newspaper and it was one of the um, new type of newspapers where they're reporting gossip and there's a picture of Frank Lee in there. But again... There are hundreds of them, you know, and he wasn't standing with Emma, if I remember correctly. I'll have to double check that for you. But um, There's no corroboration there. It's just sort of here no. you have a guy who, yeah, could be. Right. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he was smart. Maybe he disappeared on purpose. But um, so he was a tough one. Um, that actually put my deadline back because I couldn't find him. And it makes me cranky. When I can't, I'm not trying to, to reopen old wounds, Vicky. I promise okay. you, there's no re-traumatizing here at Crime Capsule. Now, who is next? Who is next Frank on the chopping block? Joseph Bremer, <clears throat> which again, nice blue collar guy, um, had kids. Kids had grown up. Wife had died. She actually died during the 1918 flu epidemic, um, which nobody, either Bertha or um, Emma it used as an excuse was the Spanish flu as a, as a means of death or sickness in their family. I thought that was interesting because a lot of people died of that. Um, the reason why I like Frank so much is because she abandoned him after she had him cremated. Um, he, his remains are still at Valhalla cemetery. I was able to go see them. I went to visit Frank um, they didn't know that he was a murder victim. Interesting that they, they would be uh, unaware of... Well, maybe they don't keep records for that sort of thing. Who knows? Well, because she brought him in. She was the person who brought him in. And, you know, if the wife says that he died of gastritis, you know, they don't care. They're just there to do the final wishes of, of the people. Um, one of the things that I this really put Emma into perspective for me is in his obituary. She wrote, he was dearly beloved by his wife, Emma. Emma abandoned Frank Bresmer's ashes at Valhalla crematorium in St. Louis, where he is still interred waiting to be claimed. Yeah. That's from our book. Um, she just dumped him and took off. She never came back after they did. And they don't, um, you know, I called and they had a little bit of a sense of humor. And when you deal with dark history, you kind of have to. But I asked if they had a lost and found and they hung up on me. And so then I waited a couple of days and I called back and was nice about it. <laughs> and um, Frank's still there. So, again, blue collar. Um, he was, I don't know what a stationary engineer in a brewery is, but I got the, that he did was mechanical that he did mechanical stuff. And, you know, here in St. Louis, we do have our breweries. He w his official cause of death was hemorrhage due to ruptured lesion. There's a word we can't read. And part of stomach wall from falling from a ladder at residence. Emma was the informant. And that means that she 
he died before she reported the accident. Uh. She was quoted as saying, he suffered a good deal after the fall, and the injury eventually brought on his death. So we really can't trust her at all. Not really. No. You know, and um, that old stomach death by falling from a ladder. um, (laughs) It was was a little iffy. Yeah. Yep. Spectacular. That's why they put those warning labels on the sides of extension ladders nowadays. Probably. I have two in my backyard, yeah. you know, and you have to read the fine print really carefully to to see how much risk you entail of, um, you know, stomach yes. injury when you're on yes. one of those. Happens all the time. The, the lawsuits are a nightmare. Okay, number four, husband number four. Where are we now? Um, this one was challenging because um, he was buried in Sligo after she dispatched him. And it took us a while to figure out where they were. Um, they, like, he was in Union in 1910, um, 1920, he's in Dent County. Um, but it turns out that he worked for the railroad. And once we figured that out, it was a lot easier to trace him. So they got married in Cuba and um, Cuba's in Crawford County here in, in the old Missouri. Um, and it, it eventually will be part of the route 66. Now, when he dies, um, he dies at the Frisco hospital, which what is why I initially thought they were in St. Louis, but actually it was because he was, a, it was a union. He was part of the railroad union and that was the hospital that served them. Um, he died of acute gastritis with acute gastritis being the contributing factor. And, um, (laughs) oddly enough, it was just months after their marriage in 1933. So like you had pointed out, Charles, she put up with for 15 years. Um, Frank disappeared, uh, Lee, Mr. Lee disappeared well, we don't know because we don't know that they were ever married, but it was a short time. Um, and then Frank Schwack was, I think, six months? Might not want to... 1931 is when she said, and he was dead by May 13th, 1931. So, not long at all. Um, a couple months after she married Bert... Or within that time, she her her his mother fell and hurt her hip, and died from it of gastritis. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Hip hip gastritis. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we figured that it popped out of her leg and into her bloodstream somehow. <laughs> and um, but Myra was yeah very ill, and they learned in 1940 when they were investigating Emma. Um, they learned that Myra King became suddenly ill after eating potato soup that Emma had prepared. That's the first time that we hear the potato soup part of the legend come out. Um, although people, no, although people had mentioned that she was a good cook before that. I wanted to ask you at this point, the body count is at least four you know, four spouses, and then maybe some some ancillary members, some hangers-on, you know, you say people just die around her. Did nobody notice, or did nobody care? I mean, Missouri is a small state. Its villages tend to be, its towns tend to be fairly close-knit, especially in the rural areas. And and did nobody think to investigate this trail of corpses that seems to be following this woman? Not yet, which is kind of funny because, you know, that trusting um, Midwestern hospitality, you know, genre, you see it in this because they, some of them were related. I believe that um, Bert's family married into the Schwack family. I know that the Vaughn family was related to um, Bert's family as well. Um, Vaughn is number five. He knew Bert. He knew Bert died of eating, quote, bad sardines. Um, <laughs> they, they, she, I think the way that she did it was that she moved all the time. 
And if you stayed below the newspapers, you know, because the newspapers would jump on anything that was murder related, you know, it was very still, you know, um, catch your eye journalism. Um, that's what she did. And so if you keep moving, but then when you start to see her devolving, it's because the mistakes that she made, I think, had to do with family. Um, you know, Bert was a widower with, um, you know, with grown children, but his mom lived with him. So she got rid of mom and then got rid of Bert very quickly. The same thing happens with Aloysius or Alois, as they call them, in St. Peter's. Um, and Tony Hepperman in, in um, O'Fallon. And I think that this is where you start seeing her starting to slip. Because, yeah, how now she's getting a trail going. You know, her husband, she's in St. Louis, which she probably thought would be a good place to hide. But his obituary was in the newspaper. You know, he, he was, they didn't know he was abandoned at Valhalla, but... Um, I think that this is where she starts to slip. And plus, she's killing too quickly. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. This sort of interval of a, a couple of months between incidents is really um, just very precarious for her. Now, uh, William Vaughn is an interesting case, and you, you write that he actually divorced her. He was the only husband that we know of to survive. Um, and there was one very specific reason for that, which you guys conclude. What what happened with William and how did he escape the chopping block? I think that he wasn't um, besotted with her. Like they said that some of the other ones were. He was... Um, smart he was cranky he was opinionated and he loved his children and as this is where her mo of the life insurance starts showing up because he was able to tell authorities later on that she immediately started nagging him to change his death insurance his life insurance to her and he said no and um you know this is also the first time where she um, slips up and we think started a fire um, because she needed him to need her and so he she his house burned um, and then she comes back and he lets her back in for a little bit and then she starts nagging again and he's like you know he was married four or five times himself don't think we didn't look at him um, but I, you know I think he was able to figure it out and kicked her out and that was his luck. And the fact that the people found him in the 40s, was it was incredible because the amount of information that he gave basically set her entire MO and um, the pathology that she was following and how he found her. Um, but what really blew me away is that he knew Bert and still married her. <laughs> Although he, he does tell a great story where, um, let me see if I can actually get the quote. Um, because she came to keep house for him, and which is the MO that we're talking about, is she tries to get in to um, motherless households that need help. 
he says that he saw her from time to time after um, Bert had died. And um, he hired her to keep house for him in 1935. This is William. This is the one that survived. He says, the first I knew we were on our way to Potosi and I was married again. On the way back from the ceremony, Emma asked Vaughn to change his life insurance over to her. She refused. He refused. She did not take kindly to that. They fought a lot. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, if she's like saying, give me the money on the way back from the ceremony, you know something's up. I was sorry that he, most of the people had passed by the time I would have liked to have met William. I also would have liked to have met um, Tony Hepperman's brother, Steve, because he was really funny. Yeah, there's a there's a great a great loss there. So, husband number six, uh, Aloysius Schneider. Unfortunately, he did not seem to share that same life saving level of suspicion of his new bride. Um, he seemed to have trusted her, which I think, in your words, may have signed his own death warrant. The Schneider family is incredibly well-known in St. Peter's, even prior to this. St. Peter's has a very German Catholic um, population, and he had a huge family. And, um, you know, Emma does the the, um, newspaper ad and gets in there, but his family visits him all the time, and they really don't live all that far. Um, At this point, she's... um, Operating in St. Charles County. She moved out of St. Louis because, you know, she took care of two or three or four if Mr. Lee's there. And this puts her back out into farmland at this point. Everybody's educated in Alloy's family, um, which I think makes a big difference because it means they're reading newspapers. And um, she moves in after, let's see... They were married somewhere, she says, in um, 37 or 38. Less than a year after the wedding, he was dead. And um, as one of the um, police officers that I chatted with about how you, you know, like when Frank was cremated, I asked my law enforcement friends, can you see arsenic in ashes? Like, could you take Frank's ashes and see if he was indeed a victim and they said no it it burns very quickly well so what they buried she buried him very quickly and it, he had what um the my friends referred to as an inordinate amount of arsenic in his system um with remember one grain can kill so he had four i think it was um yes and so um Again, nobody really suspected it, but this time the family didn't really like her. They weren't pushy about it. You know, they were just, you know, I guess passive aggressive is the fun word that they would use now. But one of my favorites was in his obituary, which Emma did not write. Emma referred to as just his wife, and then all of the kids and their family are listed by name. Oh, interesting. A little dig, a little dig. You know, it's funny, before we get to her final husband, where the threads all unravel, right, with Tony um, and her her long career uh, sort of comes to an end, it, it struck me, you know, we're doing this series right now, Vicki, on prominent women in crime history, and um, we always try to give the benefit of the doubt. We try to see uh, through their eyes to try to understand, you know, what was going on um, with them and in their time and the challenges that these women faced and so forth. And I I couldn't help but wonder, as I read your account, your and Lorelai's account, this is is kind of a strange formulation, but just let me test it on you. Um, You say that this is a woman who was born into kind of very poor rural circumstances. She probably didn't have a lot of opportunity available to her of course didn't have the vote at that time you know there's a lot that is standing against emma hepperman just from a position of you know she's she's not born on first base she's not born on second base she's born in the dugout right is cold calculating serial killer aspects aside um 
Do you think that she thinks of herself here as like a businesswoman? You know, it's like there's this kind of gross analogy between uh, almost like the real estate market, right? Like she buys a husband and then sells them, liquidates them for assets so that she can do it again, because that's the only way she knows how to survive. This is actually her business is taking advantage of these men and and taking their resources and then having to do it again, because that's really all that's available to her. Now, I know that sounds funny, and I think it sounds funny, but I'm trying to understand what's going on in her mind if she didn't have the opportunity to work or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I think so. Um, that, you know, I like to to look at them, too, through their eyes, because why, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a historian. I want to know the why. And I want to know how people do what they do and how it gets going. The blue-collar gentleman that she was trapping or hunting, so to speak, weren't going to give her a big payoff. But for her growing up in a blue collar household, you know, in like I said, with the civil war hitting, the poverty was incredible. You know, it, it's hard not to think that she might have that Scarlett O'Hara, you know, I will never be poor again, but a thousand dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. And you can see like with Tony, um, she wants more. Um, she was mad at that Aloysius. She only ended up with a small amount of money because after the burial and everything, she was mad. Um, she starts telling people in her marriage to Tony, um, allegedly, and you know, this is where you start getting the witness, uh, you know, the eyewitness accounts. She allegedly told somebody, Aloysius has got a thousand dollars and I'm going to get me that. Well, she married him. So technically she had it. Um, you know, so I'm just not sure. I think that the break that you were asking about happens somewhere after William escapes, so to speak. And that that's when she sprees is what I was always thinking is that that's when she starts making mistakes. That's when she's angry. That's when she failed for the first time that we know of. And it's, she just gets sloppy with Alois and Tony. I mean, really sloppy. Um, having a family that's there. And she with Tony, who's the last one that we'll talk about, um, she tried to get him out of the town because she knew that she'd made a mistake by having the family so close. So You know, because she had to get him separated because they were going to try to get him to a doctor. Uh, you can see her panicking and starting to create alibis in advance in these last two marriages where she's like, you know, they were eating something that maybe had poison on it. And I got sick too. Cough, cough. Um, it's really not her smart. She's not smart anymore. She, she seems like she's desperate. The web, the web is too entangled too. I mean, there are too many people who know her now. And I think that probably creates a little paranoia in her mind that leads her to make some mistakes. That makes sense. See, and like with Bertha, Bertha told people, yes, I put arsenic in their food because they were in pain and it's a painkiller. And you could conceivably say that Bertha didn't know she was going to kill them. But after 17 people, I was a little suspicious. (laughs) Um, uh, One thing that um, Bertha's daughter brought up in her book about Bertha that I think is very applicable to Emma is when you were talking about um, was she a businesswoman, you know, Emma never backs down on anything, but they were not tried by a jury of their peers. They were tried, as was the time period, by white men. And their victims, well, Emma's victims were all white men. And, you know, that can't have been a fair trial. They did move her out of St. Charles County, um, eventually to put her in union because of that fair trial in the in the papers, but she still had an all-male jury. And, you know, you can see yourself having your wife try to spike your potato soup. You know, that's a, that's a hard um, thing to not get a little cranky over, especially as she was foul when she was there. Um, on trial, she was showing her little... Um, 
her bitterness side. But so pull pull the thread for us that unravels the whole garment. Why why with Tony did it all come crashing down? Um, because Tony had kids and family who cared immensely. And I think that the big, you know, the big turning point was that she tried to um, poison Tony's daughter, Ethel. So once Ethel started failing and Ethel's sister, is it Luchin? Hold on, hold on. Isabel, I think. Yeah, Isabel is an older sister. She sees that Ethel is not doing well and talks to Ethel, and Ethel tells her stories about what her stepmother is doing. And Tony starts getting sick almost immediately, so they're both starting to fail, and Emma starts, like, calling the police on fake things, and she's setting up alibis, and um, when she finally takes Tony away from the farmhouse, Isabel gets Ethel and saves her life. And then the big one is Tony had a very, very close brother named Steve. And Steve lived with them briefly and then moved out because she was such a hag. Is, is that a good word? <laughs> I wasn't to going to say it. <laughs> um, and I remember I told you I would have liked to have met Steve. It was because during the trial, he said, she threatened to kill me two or three times, and I thought she was just kidding at first. But then when Tony got sick, I started thinking that perhaps it was, you know, it was on purpose. And then he said, lucky thing I didn't drink, eat the soup, eh? And so the, everybody started laughing in the courtroom, and I'm like, you just can't make this stuff up. That was great. You know, because they did ascertain that it was the potato soup that killed Tony eventually. Um, Tony figures out he's being poisoned before he dies. Um, her, her biggest mistake was she didn't do a, an immediate kill on him because he had time to figure it out while she's fussing with Steve about whether they can take him to St. Louis or not. Um, coincidentally enough, both Alois and Tony died at St. Joseph Hospital in St. Charles. Um, yeah, and then, like I said, Union, there were all these weird parallels going through both of these cases that, um, I just found fascinating, but, um, at that point, they dig up Alois. Oh, go ahead. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay, so what did they find when they dig him up? Well, you know what was neat is I got to talk to several of the students that were there looking out their classroom window when they started digging Mr. Schneider up, um, you know, they're in their 70s now, and they, of course, no one had ever asked them about it, you know. And so they were very excited to tell me about, you know, the machinery and everything that they brought in. So I got a very unique look at that. But what they found is that he was riddled with arsenic. And um, we're always asked why people, like, why she was only tried for um, two people. And it's because you can make a better case in poisonings. Poisonings aren't smoking guns. Uh, you know, even though you say all of the poison was in them, they could have licked the flypaper, which is what she said somebody did. Um, they could have done lots of things. So you have to take a jump, a, a leap, that someone would be so evil. Um, we didn't really talk about how horrible this death is. Um, arsenic poisoning is horrible and throwing up and dysentery and extremely painful. And for both of these women to just sit and watch it and then to be aware enough to monitor how much was going in to make sure that the death wasn't going to be overly suspicious like Alois was. Um, she still had some of her facilities with her, despite the fact that you could see she was devolving at this point. The court transcript, yeah, the the transcript from the um, from the trial is fascinating because it's still available. Anyone can search for it and read it. You know, they describe in detail how she would soak the flypaper in water to transfer the arsenic, which was soluble in water, and then add that to uh, whatever ingredients you know she might have been cooking. The whole thing is just so 
methodical and you know you realize every bit of it was premeditated from from the very beginning it's um it's kind of a lot to take in when you get into the detail of this case yeah, isn't it it is and then when you look at like her the shots the the photography from the trial and her mug shots she looks like a grandma um you know you crack me up because both of those women wore pearls to their to their trial um <laughs> they didn't have women to watch them like when they were in the sheriff's office the sheriff's wife had to take them home um to keep you know cuz they couldn't have a man you know doing that they'd never dealt with women and it is hard to take in especially when you look at Emma and you see a grandma but it's really funny because Emma made herself look older um than she was or that 10 years had finally caught up with her that we don't know when she was born um cuz she kept changing her name she kept changing her age um but yeah she stood through the whole trial um mocking people mocking um witnesses that also is hard to to um stomach you know and again sorry about the pun i think sure. that it's all right <laughs> that's, that's yeah. why that she wasn't found guilty uh not guilty by insanity or guilty be, you know i don't think they thought that she was insane because of the methodicalness of everything so let me ask you just a few questions about the aftermaths of this particular case. She is sentenced to life imprisonment in 1940. The war is on by this point. Um, and in Europe, at least, America has not yet entered, but we're watching, watching the war overseas. But back home in this courthouse, she's sentenced to life. Did she have anyone that she could rely on at this point once she entered her term in the penitentiary? You mentioned that she had some daughters, but was there anyone who was able to, I don't know, sort of speak on her behalf or try to take care of her or just kind of respond to her conviction? Yeah, no. Um, two of her daughters were still speaking to her at the conviction, she sent them letters, evidently, and I've never been able to find, you know, anyone who had one of the letters. So um, she alienated them because she would be haranguing them for letting her go to jail. Um, she was put in Wren's prison, which is a women's facility, and stayed for a while. Um, the aftermath is really kind of interesting because I couldn't write it. You know, I had a deadline, a book deadline. And um, the death certificate didn't come out until, like, it was like two days after the book came out. It was really funny. I was like, ah, dang it. But what the death certificate was able to do for us is tell the whole end of her story. Um, from that death certificate, I found out how she died. They um, had let her go in October of 1968. Um, and with the assumption that she was dying, because they had moved her to an insane asylum. Um, which was really funny, you know, ironic in a history way, because she was put in one that was not, is for people less well, is how they phrase it. But Bertha was put in for one that was also for lesser. And they let Bertha work in the kitchen. They also let Emma work in the kitchen. Oh, wow. And they were like, I don't think I would have done that, but that's okay. No, ma'am, I don't think so. In 1968, they let people out of the insane asylum in a large number because they were overcrowded, and this was when the move to making mental health institutions more humane came in. So they took people who were at no risk to anybody and let them go with no money, with nothing, just basically a couple of dresses or whatever. So Emma ends up in a halfway house up in Kirksville and dies within a couple of months. And then they bring her back to Fulton because the halfway house was affiliated with the um, the hospital, the insane asylum hospital that she was in. And she's buried there in Fulton with no headstone. And so, um, again, remember, I have my cemetery background. Um, I had to know where she was buried. So, and it was a government burial. And, and you know, so I found her. Um, you know, the maintenance men in the cemeteries always know where everybody is. And she is unmarked. And 
I don't know if that's because she had no family, but like in the cemeteries that are connected to the hospitals, they have little tiny rock markers. Emma's was completely unmarked. And, uh, you know, we had a theory or have a theory that people who are serial killers, they don't mark their graves as often because they don't want them dug up by the angry family. Um, you know, or some macabre nowadays, some macabre person, but she is buried in Fulton and, um, yeah, died of cancer. Not gastritis. Nope, not gastritis. Here at Crime Capsule, we love a good sleuthing. You know, everyone loves a police procedural, but we really like the detective aspects. You had to do a lot of piecing together this story from so many different sources. What was most useful to you as you tried to follow Emma's trail? Ancestry. Um, Ancestry.com. They are so good now. When I was looking up LaLori, which I guess was about 10 years ago, it wasn't very helpful, and I was still having to do a lot of initial primary research. Um, But because they were so late in the time period, they were 20th century, there was a lot more documentation. And once you start pulling the documentation, you can trace her evolution and where she was um, a lot better than trying to do it through like firsthand accounts from the family because oral histories aren't always that great, you know, and granted people who did the, um, censuses, they didn't really care about their job. (laughs) You know, they were just making things up sometimes, but at least they got a name that gives you an idea of where, where she was. Um, after that, there was a blog, Miss Andre. What I would just put my book. She does the most incredible research. Unknownmissandry.blogspot.com. She does all serial killers all the time. And I actually had to find stuff that she hadn't put um, because otherwise I wasn't doing my own work. You know what I mean? She was really thorough. And so when you start chatting with those type of folks saying, you know, how'd you find this and where'd you find this? It's incredible. And then honestly, afterwards, when I started doing my book signings and stuff, family came out of the woodwork. I could easily do another appendices or two or three on Emma, including the Hepperman family recipe for potato soup. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you was those two specific questions. You totally beat me to the to the punch, Vicki. The, uh, the first question I had for you was... If Emma dies in 1968, and she had been active for most of the first part of the century, I mean, this is absolutely within living memory, and she was on the way out, as you were on the way in, so to speak, so you would not have ever met her directly, but you would absolutely have had the chance to meet folks who knew her or knew the family members and the slain and so forth. And so I was just curious about that human resource that you had of interviewees or informants, uh, given that we are so close in time to these crimes. Emma's family, not family, Tony's family, was a lot, was incredibly giving. Um, They talked to me, they showed me newspapers, they had, you know family histories to talk to. And um, because I'm a persnickety history person, I would go and I would make sure that like the timelines were correct. I would pull my hard documents, you know, my history documents. They were very, very giving. The Schneiders, I wasn't really able to get in hold of any of the Schneiders. Um, And that's when I found the kids that had seen the exhumation because I was trying to find the Schneiders through their parish. Um, they married into some of the most influential families in St. Charles, but they were reticent to talk about it, you know, and I find that a lot with these true crime things is that if they're victims' families, they don't really want to talk about it because they think it's going to be about, you know, the killer, which obviously is what many people, and including us, you know, that we highlight the killer, but we also want to tell the stories of the victims, And you can't really convince anybody of that except by proving it. And so afterwards, I met a couple of the Schneiders, um, including another brother, not Steve Schneider, the one that was so funny, but a different brother. He came to one of my book signings in Warrington. 
um, in his 90s. It was incredible. And like I said, I'm a geek, so I start drooling, you know, type of thing. And um, so the that was the good thing about doing this. The bad thing was you can get sued. Um, if you're talking about people from 1834, nobody cares, you know? Well, you handled it with such care. And I thought, as I was reading your book, that one of its strengths and, and just one of the things that I love the most about it is that you really tried to tell all sides of the story. There, There is an antagonist, clearly, but you you offer a humanizing portrait of her. You try to do her justice and try to understand what's going through her mind and her her life. But then you also take each victim and family member and really offer this very generous portrait of them. And it it struck me, this, this red-like kind of a family saga over the years, but seven different families, and you t- intertwine them all together. Uh, it was It's a neat history. It really is. And, and for someone like me that does primarily 19th century history, this was um, outside my comfort zone, and it was so neat, you know, to show up at places and talk to the family. Um, that's when they would bring me, like, the newspapers um, that ta- that Lee was in was at one of the book shinings down in Washington. And, um, you know, then I, like I said, up in St. Charles County, people were coming to my work to chat with me after it came out. Um, you don't get that, you know, with the, I, I, I joke about New Orleans. Cause you know, I think I told you it's like someone at every book signing in New Orleans on LaLaurie asked me, why did you write this book? You're not from here. And my pithy answer was, why didn't you? Because it's all here. You know, the only thing that I regret about Willori is that I couldn't get the names of the slaves um, because I didn't have time to sit for seven months and go through birth records because they weren't online. You know, um, there was a woman that published shortly after us that did have the names of the, the slaves, and I'm I'm very grateful that the they got named and they got, uh, you know, a face. And Well, let me ask you just one last question, uh, Vicki, and we really appreciate your taking some time for us. Every single reader of your book has access to the most important piece of information um, of all. And yet our listeners here today, they are probably on the edge of their seats wondering, where did you find the recipe for the potato soup? We made it up. No. Um, No. No, say it ain't so. <laughs> Actually, um, there is a Hepperman cookbook that we were able to access at one point. Um, and it, it was just like any other potato soup recipe. I don't know why she was renowned for it, but um, it was really funny because we were just going to make it up. And then, and the you know, the final hour, somebody came through and, and said, but we don't even know if that was Emma's. Um, it just came from the family, which we thought was kind of cool. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, we couldn't get the biscuit recipe for Bertha either. Um, but we used mm, a recipe a that was yeah. time appropriate. And yeah. So I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I think they will probably forgive you as captivating a story as you have told. I mean, there is a lesson to be learned that when you visit Missouri, watch your waistline. I've had the gooey butter cake, and the gooey butter cake is some formidable stuff. I'm not sure I could survive multiple doses or multiple helpings. Excuse me. Um, We are renowned for our junk food, just like Philadelphia. You know, (laughs) toasted ravs, you gotta watch out It's delicious. Oh, and the German cooks, you know, that big hearty farm food. Yes, we're all thick. Absolutely, absolutely. You could raise a barn on a single breakfast. I mean, go for it, right? Exactly, exactly. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure to have you. We hope very much to have a side B of the album one day soon where we can hear more about your other murderous matron, Bertha Gifford. She sounds like another piece of work. But for now, you have been so gracious to share this story, and we are so grateful. Thank you. Well, thanks for reaching out, you guys. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Victoria Love Cosner, co-author with Lorelai Shannon of Missouri's Murderous Matrons, Emma Hepperman, and Bertha Gifford 
available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.